Kenneth Arana began his career as a lawyer in Manila, in the field of intellectual property and immigration law. He would, however, come back to the Visayas and continue his law practice in Cebu, where he'd encounter a considerably different kind of practice. He now works for a multinational company across different time zones while juggling the challenges of being a solo practitioner. In today's episode, we talk about the law practice in Cebu, Bitcoin versus other cryptocurrencies, and the COVID-19 pandemic's effect on business and the legal ramifications thereof. I do hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Ken. Welcome to my podcast. Hey, Rami. Thank I'm honored to be here. Thank you. For the benefit of the listeners, do you mind introducing yourself? I'm Kenneth, attorney Kenneth Barona. I am a Filipino lawyer. Uh, I've been in pr- the practice for, well, since 2017. Um, my practice has, I, I, I spent uh, about four years in Manila, and then I moved to Cebu. Uh, I sp- I, uh, yeah, after I graduated from Ateneo, to, uh, at the New Law School, I I worked in uh, law firms in Makati, and and now I work uh, in-house, uh, corporate. So that's been my track. And I also want one other interest. One interesting thing uh, is that I moved to to Cebu. So uh, from that law practice in Makati, now I'm now I'm in Cebu, and. Uh, that has been an interesting journey <laughs> we can talk about uh, in this podcast. Okay, uh, so let's begin first, though, with what you did when you were in Manila. And I think that's what makes you a really interesting guest to bring on because you had a, this tenure of time where you were in Manila and you were practicing the law there. What did you specialize in? Uh, in the, I specialized in intellectual property. Uh, and then later on, I, I, I brought in my practice uh, into... I did, I did some litigation, uh, and immigration also. So I, I guess you can say my practice revolved around intellectual property uh, law, immigration law, and, uh, and some, some litigation, although not, not as intensive as, I, I don't think it was that intensive, but I, I did you know, travel, go to trial, mm-hmm. uh, and the like. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, intellectual property law is particularly interesting. Like For the benefit of the non-lawyer listeners, do you mind elaborating a little bit? Okay, there are three intellectual property, patent, copyright, and trademark. And these things are important. Patent applies to inventions, uh, particularly hardware inventions, uh, selfie sticks. Uh, it, it can also apply to Music, industrial, in, industrial designs mm-hmm. uh, and the like. Uh, copyright applies to literary and artistic works, such as uh, books, paintings, uh, songs, but it can also it can also cover software, code, uh, so that's covered by copyright uh, in the Philippines. In in the U.S. or other countries, maybe code or software can fall under patent, but I'm not too familiar with that. But in the Philippines, it falls under copyright uh, software. I mean, and uh, trademark uh, involves distinctive identifiers that uh, distinguish businesses their products and service apart from one another. So uh, this is what we see, uh, like, you know, the Nike logos, uh, Nestle, the the distinctive logos, trademarks uh, that that we see in in products and services around us. Now, intellectual property practice in the Philippines, 80% of it is trademark, Hmm. right? Uh, That's based on my experience. Um, So it's... Because you know these businesses, there's a lot of businesses that don't register trademark, and uh, the the right to the trademark goes to the person first to file. I mean, I mean first to register. Or the presumptive right. The presumptive right, yes. So that can create problems. That can create, you know, some if there's a bad faith actor uh, who can register a trademark before the actual originator of that trademark that can create problems and are there professional con artists to do that in the philippines i, I know that's I, a very I, common they're, they're very savvy i mean the people who copy and anticipate the registration of trademarks they're very savvy they eventually they they try to hide and then once they get found out then they, they negotiate a settlement so it's basically blackmail 
that's what they do. And yeah, with copyright, that usually involves musical artists and academic institutions. Uh, in the Philippines, as with other countries, musicians and uh, other content creators, yeah, they don't have the resources, or it's not really, not even the resources, but they don't have the interest in enforcing their copyright. Mm. They, they, they want to protect their rights, but then they, they don't have the interest. That's why we have uh, these uh, collective management organizations or rights management organizations uh, that that they can sign up to, and those and and those organizations will enforce their rights for them. And then, and then a yeah, patent that's really limited to people with a technical background. And uh, presumably, that's not very big in the Philippines because there's not that much high-level inventing going on. I think it, it's a very niche area, and it can be very lucrative for those who have the the training for it, the skill sets. Mm. So engineers that you know take up take up law maybe and and they become lawyers also so mm. they can th that's an automatic i mean i mean th that's a very that's an easy way to get into that to that industry like so just to clarify the this like the space that intellectual property law exists in right uh in your personal judgment does intellectual property law like on the scale of the different things that a lawyer can be doing in terms of sophistication is it on the higher end? Like, is it closer to something like, say, for example, mergers and acquisitions, or is it on the lower end, like being a notary public in a rural town? It's certainly not at the level of a notary public. <laughs> certainly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's, well, there's a big difference between patent, trademark, and copyright. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I can't speak too much for patent, but then I would think that that's the most... The, the level of difficulty there is very high because, of course, you need the training to understand what these, what these claims mean, right? Mm -hmm. what, 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 what these specifications mean, right? And uh, to apply the law there. And uh, let's look at trademark first. I mean, it's also difficult because it's, it's, it's a factual, what lawyers call a factual issue where you're comparing like two logos mm -hmm. and and sometimes there's not really any clear answer as to w if one logo is confusingly similar to another mm -hmm. so it's really a matter of how you advocate but then i guess it's a skill of a lawyer is uh, making a, a creative argument to advocate for one's client and to say that indeed there is a trademark infringement or there's no tra trademark infringement based on how you how you understand or how you compare two trademarks from one another, mm -hmm. right? So I can't really compare it with mergers and acquisitions. Uh, I've touched on that aspect a little bit in my current uh, job, but it, it, it seems like mergers and acquisitions takes a team of people to do, whereas a trademark case, you can do it with one lawyer supervised ladies and gentlemen he's open for business um so in in cebu city uh, no i'm just kidding but then I, uh, so if i can take you though to the next topic um what i wanted to ask was and i think this is a really dumb question to ask in in the philippines to ask a lawyer who used to work in a firm how busy were you because the answer is always very very busy right so i'll next level the question and i'll ask you how did you manage the your time when you were in a very busy law firm the usual way to manage the time in a law firm is through logging your time mm -hmm. in, a, in a daily time record. And you, you log in the hours, uh, increments of, it depends on the firm, but sometimes 15, 30 minutes is the minimum increment. And, you, and, and this is important for the firm so that the law firm can make sure that the lawyer is spending his or her time uh, in activities that are valuable mm -hmm. because it's actually easy for a lawyer to do stuff that, that can be delegated to paralegals or to secretaries, mm. right? Management is, and personal administration is one of the pillars of good lawyering. So uh, earlier on in my career, uh, my mentor told me that there are three pillars of good lawyering. That's uh, legal knowledge, marketing, and 
personal administration. Legal knowledge is what you learn through experience and what you learn in law school, the knowledge that you gain. Administration is how you manage your time, and that involves, and there are many ways to do this, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about that later, uh, but personal marketing is how you relate to your colleagues, your clients, uh, partners in the law firm, and subordinates in, in the law firm. Uh, administration, there's a lot of ways, and this is a business opportunity, actually, because there are a lot of software products that help lawyers with their administration, with their efficiency. Software like Rocket Matter, Clio. Whereas before, you used paper, paper log to log the number of minutes or the number of hours that you spent for this activity, for this client. Now, there's software that can you can just press on the timer and then for the duration of the work that you do for that client for that activity that gets entered into uh, into the record right and then at the end of the week you generate that report and then there's a monthly report so that you can really track your productivity using that and that's popular overseas and, and that's how i manage my time right now it, it's very it's very convenient mm, mm. because you can look at your inputs and you can look at your outputs mm. so i guess one of those things that uh, lawyers are often shocked by when they leave the law firm, especially when, you know, you're like me. So my personal experience was I came from law school and I did not have a lawyer in the family. I became a lawyer because I wanted to become a lawyer. And so I have no idea what the practice looks like. Uh, so if I can ask the question, um, how did your practice in Manila contradict with what you thought the practice would be like coming straight out of law school? Both law school and the practice of law were new to me. I did not have a concept of what a lawyer did. I did not have a concept of what a law student did, believe <laughs> it or not. Even after law school, I went into legal practice. That still gave me a culture shock. I felt like I, I honestly needed a break after college. If I were to go back, and this, is not, this doesn't mean I regret going straight to law school or, or whatnot. It, it doesn't mean I regret going to law school. But if, if you observe or if... if from me, from my experience, observing the people who were successful in law school, these are the people who had work experience. Not all of them, but this is just a rule of thumb. So people who worked in banks, people who worked in whatever business, they had the anchoring in experience, in reality, in the real world, to be able to apply what they learned in law school, which is very abstract, very technical rules, rules, statutes. They're able when they read a case, they're able to apply it to real life because they have that prior real world experience. And if you're just reading books and doing schoolwork, I don't think it, you'll. It's not the same. So it's like schoolwork, and then you go straight into legal legal text. It's ivory tower activity. So that's just my personal opinion. No, it's, it's, I think it's a fair opinion because I, I think now looking back on it, I wish I had more experience in the world before I went to law school. Because, man, like, you know, they would they would crack jokes about us and like they would say something that's very common, like a what is a cedula class? And then like, you know, none of us have any idea. <laughs> like we would all look at each other and be like, and then the people who like are employed, they're like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because they, they know these things because they encounter them all the time. So I think I think that speaks to an incredible, well... Uh, incredibly important advantage of someone who goes to work first before going to law school. That said, I mean, doesn't mean that you can't be, you're less of a lawyer somehow, just that you're definitely working from a very, let's say, practical yeah. uh, disadvantage. Uh, so your practice in Manila centered around like really, not the man highfalutin, uh, let's say, uh, niche. Like it was a relatively niche practice of law, like contained to one area. Right. And I think that's common for a lot of law firms in Manila. You get known for a particular kind of practice. And so people come to you with more of that same kind of work. Right. So how's the practice in Cebu? Honestly, it's going slow. I came here with certain expectations. Those expectations I still think were realistic. I had a range that was a very like what success meant and what failure meant. And like, you know, what, what average would mean. And well, I, I was also here 2020, but then I, you know, I had to help family and had to 
do some other stuff. In 2021 was my real start. And that was still the time that things, the economy was slow. Like people were still recovering and suffering from all of the restrictions that are a cure that is worse than the disease of COVID, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> so so it was it was going really slow and I I basically pivoted. I, I told myself I experienced clients which were not serious in terms of getting legal service. In terms of getting serious legal service because as a lawyer you're selling your time. Mm. Right? And you only have a limited you only have twenty four hours in a day. And of course you're not gonna spend all of that time working and we're both from Manila Law School, and this is not to say that you know people from other law schools are less uh, lawyers than we are, but we do. We, that gives us certain expectations, right? And a certain, and we have a certain quality of work that we can give. And I just felt like the clients who came to me, they were, they, they just weren't serious. Like these engagements, they asked for discounts and promises of contingency arrangements, which which in the end they were half-hearted about. Uh, anyway, long story short, I pivoted by getting a fixed income, which is a job. And I got something that I don't know anybody has done in my peer group, in my social group, which is that I got a night job. Mm -hmm. I got a, a a night job. Working for... Work, uh, work, working for a BPO, but then that's, that's only nominally, but I really worked with a legal team in Puerto Rico and the US and, and then I, I didn't even I didn't have a lot of expectations there but it turned out it was it's a really good experience it really opened my eyes to how business is conducted in the US and in North America and how lawyers there work and how they think about things and how and how the corporate world works uh, before that I did not have knowledge or experience in business whether in a corporate employment setting or in managing a business per se Mm -hmm. uh, w what is that insight like wh what are lawyers what is the work of lawyers like in those foreign countries it, to the extent that you interact with them of course well it's I can I can hit you with an example while you think so I actually had to interact with a lawyer in uh, was it Canada and like he emailed me and there were like four people cc'd in the email and they were all his paralegals <laughs> So that was that was like, hmm, I have one paralegal. So I'm doing something wrong here. And, you know, the wages here are cheaper. <laughs> but yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Well, it's it's remarkable the extent to which our skill set is actually can actually carry over to another jurisdiction. Uh, people people are quick to jump to the conclusion that we go to law school, we learn Philippine law. And we can't apply that to another jurisdiction because obviously there are different laws. However, when you're in the corporate setting and your work is to review contracts and to draft contracts and to manage transactions, the legal aspect of transactions, the concept of an indemnity clause is the same in the US and in the Philippines. The concept of the, the grounds for termination, breach of contract, data privacy concepts are very similar. So. If you have experience reviewing contracts in the Philippines, whatever contracts they may be, lease contract, vendor agreements, and whatnot, that can that, that carries over. Like the, just the skill set in looking at the provisions of the contract and finding red flags or finding things that need to be amended or changed so that it can be a little bit in favor of your client. Mm. So just that's just one example. Well, you know, you and I, like, we come from this similar background where we both started a law practice in Cebu uh, during the COVID time. So Yours worked, mine didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the extent to the level at which I succeed is not exactly known to you. So I'm going to reserve judgment on myself. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you spoke to a, like a particularly unique experience earlier when you said that, um, you know, you after you came back from Manila, there was like a bunch of family stuff that you had to handle. It's a uniquely Filipino experience, I think, where the moment that someone in the family becomes a lawyer, uh, you have to just sort of man up and confront all the legal problems your family's been ignoring for way too long. Yep. <laughs> but um, I, and I guess this is a, like a bit of a dead horse if I asked you uh, how the, 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 the law practice in Cebu differs from the law practice in Manila. 
but um, maybe because as you mentioned it was quite hard but what was the biggest shock let's say from going from Manila to Cebu there's a difference between uh, one example is legal advice just basic legal advice in Manila you, you charge per hour for legal advice mm-hmm. and there was a joke a half a joke because there's uh, because it's actually true but then it got turned into a joke which, which is that in the law firm uh, this was told to me by a partner there was a an associate who was asked to log his time because he wasn't logging his time, mm-hmm. right? And you have to log your time in a law firm. And from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., what he wrote there was, okay, different clients, but then what he wrote in, t- in, the, activity col- in the activity column was thinking. So that, that, was, that was what he was doing, right? And, and it's true, you're, you're get getting paid to think. The time that you're researching and thinking... I mean, thinking is also researching. Like you're 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 recalling what you learned. You're integrating different thing, facts, whatever concepts in your head. I think that's also one of the privileges of being a lawyer is you're getting paid to think, and giving giving a very comprehensive legal opinion, which I did in Manila. Relatively often, I would assume. Like that. That's not something that's. Like in Cebu, you'd rather give a rough and ready yeah. opinion, mm-hmm. right? Like they're not interested in clients are here, especially if you're if you're a lawyer who is just starting out. Mm-hmm. Like they're not going to be interested in your in how many citations you have and whatnot, mm-hmm. and and your excerpts of jurisprudence. Like they're not they're going to skim through that. Like unlike the more educated, they want a yes or a no. Yes, exactly. That that's what it is in Cebu, right? So th- that 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 was just that's just one example of the difference in both, whether in Cebu and Manila. Mm. Yeah. The, the 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 way that I find lawyers succeed in Cebu is that they like really crawl into a niche, and they um, they really occupy that niche so that they're really well known in that one area where. Like, they are the go-to lawyer for, like, say, for example, judicial titling. They are the go-to lawyer for free patent. Like, and it can get to that point where they're really so shoehorned into, like, this one particular kind of transaction, like disputing capital gains assessments with the BIR, things like, things of that nature, uh, where, you know, like, that's what their practice becomes about. So I think the specialization thing, I think that was a bit unfair earlier when I characterized the practice in Manila as opposed to the practice in Cebu does not have specialization it does but it's just with the more archaic concepts like land transfers and these kinds of things i think what's important when you're approaching say for example your own law practice and you're deciding to which niche to occupy in cebu that uh you you put like a few feelers out so like me currently in my practice like land titling is definitely one processing of transfers is another disputing tax assessments is another like i'm sort of like just slowly learning the ins and outs of these individual process and um getting to a point where i'm comfortable with them where i can then begin the process of systematizing so i have not gotten to that point where i'm capable of systematizing anything yet so that's why i say that i'm not exactly successful because that's that's my definition like when i have that when i have this one niche of the law locked down and pat right that's when i'll say that maybe i've made it but definitely not yet <laughs> um so why do you think, though, like, so one, one important thing that I like to call a distinction towards is, and this is something that you asked me about when you were coming to Cebu, when you were, you were trying to feel your way around. Um, I, I explained to you that a lot of the law offices here are, like, loose partnerships or, like, not properly partnerships at all. They just share office space. That's true. Yeah. Right? And then as opposed to Manila, where there's lots of law offices, which are actually formally, like, SEC registered, the whole shebang. Like, why is it that law offices in Manila are bigger, you think, than the law offices here in the province? I just think it's because of the economy. I mean, there's a bigger legal market for legal services, and it reflects mm-hmm. in in the the size of the law offices that uh, that, that are in Manila. Mm. Would you mind if I add, though? I, th- I think I think I think that certain kinds of legal transactions also can only be done in Manila by definition. Like, I think that's a really big limiter on the growth of, like, Cebu-based law firms because unless you have a partner in Manila who can, like, make, like, all the, the papers, yeah. like, like you'll never you'll never supervise a merger. You'll never supervise, like, an acquisition of a large corporation because, you know, all the approvals, they have to go to Manila. Yeah. Uh, I remember 
there was someone who came to me for like a tax treaty relief application. <laughs> and then like, I'm like, okay, like I studied the process and I'm like, okay, these are the requirements. I can, I can get a handle on that. I can draft these documents. I can do it. And then, and then my heart sank when I went to the BIR and I'm like, oh, like, what do you need? It's like, oh, you have to send it to like the national office or the NO as they call it from the BIR. And I'm like, dang it, man. Oh, just outside of my reach. Like I could do it. I'm smart enough. But then like, I can't provide it because I'm based out of Cebu. So you ultimately decided to m make the decision to uh, leave the partner track or, or, well, to leave the law firm and uh, come to Cebu. What made going on the partner track an, an, an unattractive option? I didn't see myself in a law firm, in any law firm, really. I, I, want, I wanted to, to, do, to do my own thing uh, and see what I could do on my own. And... And yeah, and my move is not from Manila to Cebu. It's not purely a career move. It's also, you know, motivated by wanting to be closer to family and other things. But uh, eventually, I, I think I, I would have left law firm life eventually, even if I stayed in Manila. Uh, I, I just wanted to see what it was like to be independent. Uh, it's I think it's more of a temperamental thing rather than a rational choice. Quite definitely, I've like I've said, I decided to get a job. Because I realized that things were going slowly and I didn't like the kinds of work that I was getting and the, the fees that, 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 that you have to accept if you were going to, to start as a independent legal practitioner in Cebu. And yeah, I, like quite honestly, it's, it's more the impairment and the curiosity of, of seeing what it would be like to go independent. Like I, I, I had something to prove to myself and, and yeah, and I, I still do. I still do. I, I did not give up on it completely. The advantage of being in Cebu, again, with what you described as offices that are, that are shared among, among different lawyers who all have their separate practice. The advantage of that is it's low cost. You share expenses for a secretary, for printing messengers. And that went in my favor because I can still maintain a legal practice uh, separately simultaneously with a job with my night job so so yeah I, I like that i'm able to strategize it allows me having a fixed income from my job plus a variable income from legal practice that allows me to strategize in terms of the engagements that i get um and 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 frankly the the, the work that I can uh, that I can commit like I don't I don't need to go all out looking for clients and I, I don't have to settle for I can be more selective mm. in terms of the work that I can get on the side mm. which I'm which I which I'm doing in in my own way mm. so yeah uh, like I'm, I'm trying to build an immigration practice that's one of the the things that can routinely be done and can be done in a in a way that is that won't require as much attention as other deliverables and that's part of my strategizing no, it's one of those things, though. Like, I noticed, like, there's a trend coming up where uh, law firms are setting up, like, adjacent consultancy practices. I don't know if you're aware of this. Because it's, 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 like, uh, I, I know I can name, like, a few law firms, but I won't because, like, the connotations of this is that, like, it's marketing and I don't want to make any false accusations. But I know of and I'm aware of certain law firms where they set up consultancy practices because a consultancy, it's more, it's, it's like an informal law practice. You know, you're shoehorned into a particular service. And I guess that's partly a function of the requirement that law firms g occupy these small niches, right? And yeah, it's just such a weird thing, you know, like like lawyers having to adapt their degrees to an inherently like commercial act of like marketing a consultancy. Yeah, and I, you know, I won't, I won't, I won't name law firms because you know that's essentially accusing them of being unethical. So if you can walk us through your day and how you've structured it, because I think the way you've chosen to tackle the problem of the, so like I, for example, what I did was I jumped in hard and I just forced myself to grow. Like I'm going to take this lease, I'm going to take an employee and I'm going to, I'm going to be there nine to five every day and then like make it work. Like find, find the freaking clients all the time. And that, that's one way to go about it. Right. But you chose an entirely different way, which I don't think many people do. What does your day look like? Like how did, where does your time go? My job is at night and it's uh, flexible, but generally it's from 9 to 6, 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. So I sleep in the morning and I wake up around 11, 12. And, and in the afternoon, I go to the office. I, I, I go to the, the shared office that I have in, in the middle of the city and I work on my deliverables. It's, it's like working two jobs. 
which at this point uh, when you're in your late 20s is <laughs> late 20s. like you have to do that i mean <laughs> i like i like the hustle right i mean you got to hustle while you're, while you're still healthy so that that's my day and uh, everything else well, leisure extracurriculars and whatnot uh, revolve around that and when you have a night job plus this side legal practice you have to really manage your week i'm trying to get better and better at that man- managing my week and i also have a paralegal that I have solely to myself that I don't share with 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 the other lawyers and my life really improved once I I I got that paralegal it really helps to delegate mm-hmm. one of the things that I learned and I'm sure you also learned once we took this path of going independent was the lessons that we learn outside of the law such as budgeting managing your income and expenses and the importance of delegation right importance of managing subordinates, delegation, giving instructions in a small part leadership. So th- those are the things that I think I've, th- 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 that well, my decision, which I've already said was not, maybe not a rational one to go independent, that gave me those things, the benefit of having to deal with managing my own income and expenses as a law office and, and the value of being able to manage people. Like over and above whatever lesson I learned in practicing law, that was what I had to deal with. I needed to get good at managing people and managing my week. Mm. So right now, is it, is, it, is it a fair assessment to say that most of your money comes from the job that you keep? Yes. Okay, yeah. It's one of those things now that's really hard. Like me personally, for example, um, I'm about to. I'm, I'm actually about to get a second full-time employee. Like I'm <laughs> right on the precipice. Like I can feel it. You know, like you're I, going. Good job. Yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to try to find someone who's more because my my secretary slash paralegal now. Uh, she's in slash messenger. She's basically all around Maria. She's great. She's wonderful. Anyone who comes to my office, please say hi to Maria for me. Um, yeah, she she's not exactly the best when it comes to, like the the written word. Her English is not so good. So um, yeah, that's something that I plan to get. Maybe maybe a law student to help grow the practice. Because just not having to think about what to write and then just looking at a finished product and then like making corrections, right? That's such a big time exactly. saver. Exactly. You can you can create a system, mm-hmm. right? And templates and 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 then and then they can run the system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so. What 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 are your interests now? Like so, like obviously, like you, you have so much time, like that you put towards your work because you have like the afternoon law practice and then the nighttime job, right? But what are some of those things that you you occupy your time with when you you're not working on anything? Well, I try to be educated about what's going on in the world. I try to read a number of books. Back then and even until now, I'm interested in in crypto and Bitcoin, but I'm not so interested in crypt- the crypto space anymore. And you can ask me why later. Um, yeah, it's trying to get fit, get <laughs> maintain health, trying to be social, just the regular stuff. And and yeah, uh, what's your workout routine like? Kettlebells. Kettlebells. Yeah. You're a disciple of Joe Rogan. Yeah. This is a pot calling the tea kettle black, by the way, because I started a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> let let let's latch onto something. You you said that. Uh, you know, you're you're really into Bitcoin, but not so much into crypto. Yes. And then like most people would look at that statement and be like, huh, aren't those two things the same thing? Uh, so let's start first, I guess, with what is a Bitcoin? Okay. Uh, Bitcoin is an innovation in public key cryptography. It's an innovation in that area that allows for sending of, it's a, it's both a payment system, it's a payment system and and the currency it's like when i send you bitcoin i'm not sending you anything i'm sending you a, there's a transaction that's recorded in a public ledger and the in the, and a ledger with debits and credits transactions like that's that already exists in in the banking world in the financial world that's how we're able to send to wire money from one jurisdiction to another from one place one person to another but the innovation with bitcoin is you don't need an intermediary because there's no one central authority that maintains this public ledger and this public ledger is immutable because of how the system is architected so these transactions that build over time they are verified through a process of mining and then the process of mining the miners or the verifiers of these blockchain of transactions are distributed all over the world and they work together because of the architecture of the software, but they 
like they don't know each other. They, they work in a system wherein, and they're anonymous to each other. That's what I'm trying to say. And, and that's why it works, because there's no central point of failure. It's like you have players in the ecosystem, like exchanges that can be attacked. And they're trying to be like banks, right? Like Coinbase, Coins.ph. These are they are they are exchanges where you can buy and sell Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. However, it's not necessary to go that route because you can you can keep Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in cold storage. You can keep it in a digital wallet, and as long as you have the private key, it, it doesn't matter whether your cell phone gets destroyed. You can transfer. You can recover. You, you always have that Bitcoin as long as you remember that private key. So that's the advantage of of cryptocurrency over the traditional financial system. The difference between Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is the other cryptocurrencies have not demonstrated that they are limited in supply. Bitcoin, it's been around for 10 years and that 21 million supply cap hasn't been changed and there's not much reason to think that it will be changed just because of, and there's a complicated discussion involving that, but the other cryptocurrencies, they don't even pretend to have a limited supply. And the advantage of having, having a limited supply is you have a deflationary currency. And a deflationary currency means that the more demand for your currency, because it's more, there's more adoption, it's being used to, to, for payments, like those, there's more goods and services basically chasing the same 21 million Bitcoin. So the more that it's used, the more that its price is going to rise. And these other currencies, cryptocurrencies, do not have that quality. One also significant advantage is Bitcoin is used as a major asset in the treasury of Fortune 500 companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy. Other cryptocurrencies are not treated with the same seriousness as this. So so it's leading the way. It's it's been there. It's the first. It's the first mover, but it's been there for ten years. And it has a limited supply cap. So that's that's what makes it qualitatively distinct from the other cryptocurrencies. And there's also a, a dimension of things like human rights, things like countries. There, there are people in the world today who are suffering from hyperinflation, from, from currencies, fiat currencies that are rapidly depreciating. And it's easy to overlook that, that the traditional paper money fiat currency, many are failing and many are inflating in a way that, that are making so many people in the world suffer. And and the quick alter alternative is Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let me let me just like speak to like some certain uh, things that like like that discussion kind of struck with me. Is I think like some important things to highlight about uh, Bitcoin and uh, well, just really Bitcoin is that it gets around certain things that are required for fiat currency to function. Like I think. The fact that uh, they use uh, zero knowledge proofs, or essentially this m mathematic sauce that makes it that you don't need to someone to independently verify that a transaction has occurred, because technically anyone can independently independently verify if a transaction has occurred, it means that you largely dispense with institutions like SWIFT, uh, which is coming into the news recently because of the whole Ukraine debacle and Russia's exclusion from that consortium, which exists solely to validate transactions between banks, and that. The, the fact that that entity even exists at all introduces costs. The second one uh, is, uh, you know, your anti-money laundering regulations, which require that, you know, you, you, you be able to show with uh, a high degree of legal certainty exactly what the purpose of the money that you're sending is for. Well, although certainly certain Bitcoin exchanges now, I think they've started to, to comply with AMLA requirements. They are required. Yeah, the, the exchanges, but then the actual blockchain itself. No. Right, if, like say for example if you were sending from one cold wallet to another I guess like that yeah. that would be a way of getting around it All right. Uh, and the last I think is um, you know the existence of other cryptos that have built in um, inflation as you as you called it right there's seniorage is technical term but the inflation se seniorage is that seniorage yeah okay so actually that was why that was that was the that was the thing that was memed to death which was a doggy coin or how do you, how do you say it Dogecoin. Do Dogecoin. Yeah. Nobody, everyone argues. is the reason why Elon Musk was uh, quoted famously uh, as saying that uh, Dogecoin is better than um, Bitcoin as a currency. Precisely. And he wasn't, he was, he was making like a, a general statement precisely because it has that, what's that, what's that term again that you use? Sen seniorage. Seniorage. So that it's actually a good thing that to a certain extent that inflation is introduced because it means that the supply of money increases as uh, presumably your population and its economic needs and the speed of transactions might increase. And I think that was, that was 
he wasn't saying that because a, a dog on a face of a coin is somehow better than a bee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that brings me now to my next point because doggy coin or doge coin or however you say it would fall into this ambit of um, other crypto, uh, this dichotomy that you put up, like between Bitcoin and other crypto uh, coins. Um, are cryptos like the other kinds, are they like closer to fiat currencies or are they like really just a ponzi scheme like where where do they lie on that spectrum there's a website called coin market cap which lists the market uh basically like the market size of cryptocurrencies and i like to say this often which is that the ones that are rank 50 and below they're basically all scams it matters that the let's say the iq points community community matters the the because the people who are technically trained and understand the the under the hood of the technology of bitcoin always like to say well you know what the smartest developers are in bitcoin it has the best community and, and there's a point to that because at a certain point wh why will you need 50 cryptocurrencies in the world why will you, you need 100 you might as well go back to barter right yeah. In fact, the economists would agree that like the idea of having a medium of exchange is so that you can exchange actual goods and services in a convenient manner. So to have 50 mediums of exchange, that wouldn't make any sense, right? So, but then if you're creating so many cryptocurrencies, then you're, that's exactly creating the situation where you have so many mediums of, mediums of exchange. In fact, it would create more efficiency, economic efficiency in the world if there was less fiat currencies. The less currencies in general, whether fiat or crypto, the better. And it only so happens that, you know, countries are sovereign and they can issue their own currency. Like, that's the only reason why there are many currencies, right? Because it's an aspect of sovereignty that you can issue your own coin, mm. even dating back to the time of kings. But in the world of cryptocurrency, there is no, th that element does not apply. There's no element of sovereignty. Like, the person who can create cryptocurrency can be anyone. Mm. And... That's what makes it dangerous because it can be anyone. And that's why the public perception of crypto is a scam because there have been so many scammers, people who do ICOs. Mm -hmm. uh, ICO is a what? Uh, ICO is an initial coin offering, right? So that's when it, it's basically you're raising money mm -hmm. through the issuance of, of, of uh, crypto. Of, of crypto. That's how that's how you're raising money. If you look at from the standpoint of economic coordination, there's no reason why to have many cryptocurrencies. So it brings into question the motivations of these people, why they're creating additional additional cryptocurrencies. Everyone it, wants to be the central bank, man. Exactly. And just think about the incentives of that. Yeah. You can raise money without having to go to the SEC, without having to... From the public. Uh, yeah, from the public, without, without having to IPO, without having to register a security. It's moral hazard. Uh, just to jump in really quick, because um, actually, uh, just for the benefit of the listeners who are not lawyers, because um, we have this thing that's built into us. And one of the most important qualifiers in the law is from the public, right? Yes. Like that is one of the things which for which the licenses are the most difficult to procure. So say, for example, if you wanted to own a truck and operate a truck, that's fine, right? But if you wanted to sol solicit from the general public, you know, their interest in your service, then you need a certificate of public convenience. If you wanted to open a bank, which means that you have money from the public, then you need a corporation with at least a billion pesos of assets in it. So uh, from the public is one of the most important qualifiers, I think, yeah. that can exist in the law, right? And um, the fact that crypto hasn't already been regulated, despite its ability to solicit money from the public, is, an imp is very telling of the... I guess the social danger that it exhibits. Yes. Yeah. yes. Mm. But do you think it should be regulated? Like, because you're a lawyer, but you're also a crypt, uh, Bitcoin uh, supporter, and you really like it as a principle. I'm really neutral on that about how countries should regulate cryptocurrency. However, it's coming to a point right now where the SEC in the United States, like they need to limit their definition of what a security is, right? Because Bitcoin is already circulating as a currency and it's being used. There is no advantage whatsoever to anyone to legally define it as a security. Like because nobody, what, like no, no, nobody controls it. It's decentralized. There's no advantage to the exchanges, to the wallets to define Bitcoin is a security. If anything, it will just add regulatory burdens on them. With regard to the other crypto, I do, I, I agree with you that there is a public interest to tell the public what is the risk. Because again, from a standpoint of economics, there is no advantage to anyone and to the economy. If there are more, like the more the cryptocurrencies, you don't need more medium of exchanges. 
you don't again like you said people want to print their own money and that's really the reason why they want they, they want a market for their the cryptocurrency that they created so that they can get rich it's pump and dump and yeah. it's got to the point where like i think there's subscription services for like setting up your own coin yeah. <laughs> like that's how that's how ingrained the scam has become <laughs> yeah so actually this is something that i heard like and i can't even remember where i heard it because it's that that's how uh shall we say uh fringe it is or no i, I you know you might agree with it so I, I won't i won't i won't i won't call it fringe but some people in the bitcoin community or the crypto community depending on how we define it um say that you know inflation is actually one of the most powerful weapons like the most the one of the most destructive weapons that the state wields as against you because you know especially for poor people who their net worth is really tied up a lot in the cash that they have like a reduction of uh, purchasing power can be absolutely brutal so do, do you agree with that statement and like and i guess implicitly that somehow bitcoin is a hedge against that power i fully agree that inflation is another form of taxation i mean if you tax people then you need to pass a law to raise the inflation the, 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 the taxes Mm-hmm. You, you need you need to make people no taxation without representation. So mm-hmm. any new tax it has to be by law, which means presumably that the people are in favor of it. If the people are not in favor of it, then the people who supported the uh, the politicians who support the legislators who supported the tax increase will not get reelected. With inflation, it's a purely administrative decision by a bureaucrat, which is the central bank chief, mm-hmm. right? I mean that's. It's covered by a cloak of expertise and economic sorcery, and people are just going to think, well, you know what, inflation targeting, uh, all of these fancy terms, and you know they studied, they're very smart people, and we trust them. We trust them. Like I, I, I have no time to understand what they're doing, but whatever, target six percent inflation, seven percent, whatnot, right? Like so as not to make the economy run, to make because you know there's an argument. Yeah, you know, standard economics is like you don't want the economy to overheat with too much inflation, but you don't want it to stagnate with low inflation. And Bitcoin is an exit from that, right? You don't participate in that process anymore. Exactly. What What if I read all the books, right? What if What if I subscribe to a different economic theory, to a different monetary theory, or what if I'm just I simply just don't want my my savings to be in something that reduces that that reduces in value, mm. that decreases in value year by year, mm. right? Over the past ten years, year by year, Bitcoin has increased every year by a hundred percent. At least. At least. Uh, last year, I think it's fifty three in but it's solid, and the theory that it's deflationary has has held up. Mm. Right, can't say the same for other cryptocurrencies, but with Bitcoin, the theory underpinning it has held up, and people should have that choice. People should have that choice. Mm. Well, I guess uh, I will add one thing though, because um, I think I think maybe it, the the assertion that it's a purely administrative process might not be entirely bulletproof, because there are aspects of inflation which are not within the direct control of the government. Like, say, for example. The uh, war in Ukraine. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yes. Raise fuel prices. Okay, we're we're at least on the same page in that respect. I should say that um, at this point in the podcast, that me and Ken are not like investment advisors. We're not. Yeah. So uh, don't take anything that we say is gospel truth, and then dump your life savings based on what Ken just said or what I'm about to say. I I completely agree with you though that inflation is a bad thing for cash. So uh, generally smart thing to do is invest in like. In your case, you decided on Bitcoin, and that has, you know, been largely a very successful choice for you, right? So, leave it be for me to question the logic behind that. I personally invest in the stocks more, right? I'm a bit more archaic in that way. <laughs> uh, I also have stocks. Yeah, yeah, but I mean only stock. Right? I don't, I don't have, I don't have a single Bitcoin to my name. Uh, I mean, well, or part of a Bitcoin because I, I think very few people can buy a single Bitcoin now. Um, and so we talked about the weapons of government, right, and how they suppress uh, the ability of the people to kind of do things, like especially with their money, right, in terms of inflation and purchasing power. But there's a more pressing social issue that kind of looms large over us now and has largely dominated our life for the past two years. Um, COVID, like, um, now of course, uh, we are not health experts, and so we're, we're, we're going to leave aside a discussion of anything related with uh, how bad COVID is for you. Like, this is not the podcast episode for that. And we, we, 
well, at least I, as the progenitor of this podcast, I'm very familiar with the terms of service of Spotify and do not <laughs> want to have my <laughs> podcast flagged as misinformation. But since we are both lawyers, right, we are in a uniquely capable position of discussing the the legal challenges that COVID has presented to society over the past two years. So, Ken, let's start with you. Right? What are some of the legal challenges that you think COVID has presented society with? The powers of the government have vastly increased as a result of the, of the COVID pandemic. Back in March of 2020, the President of the Philippines passed the Bayanihan Act, which gave him emergency powers, which gave the government, the government emergency powers on the basis of Article 6, Section 23 of the Constitution. The pandemic was considered a national emergency, and that was a reaction to the WHO declaring that we indeed had a pandemic in, in the world. And that, like, sure, the, the government has the right to do that under our constitutional law. I just think that we should review the premise behind having a national emergency and the destructive effects that it, ha it has had on businesses, on human life, on regular daily interaction between people. That should be reviewed. And there will be long-term effects. There are unseen, long-run, indirect effects of these regulations. For example, children, for the longest time, are not, uh, were not allowed to go out. They were not allowed to go out of the house to interact and play outside. And many people were stuck in their homes. And that resulted in, and will result, we're still seeing the effects of that in changes to mental health, to lifestyle. And that... Uh, and these things are unpredictable and we need to question whether it was all worth it because, okay, legally, emergency powers, that's okay. I mean, from a purely constitutional standpoint, but it's, but it's a question of fact whether, whether, whether these regulations are reasonable, mm. right? And because these emergency powers are still with us now and it touches on every constitutional right. The right to freely practice one's religion is included there because people are prevented from going to church in the way that they did before, the right to travel, obviously, and, and you know, the freedom of commerce, that has to be reviewed. And, and let me give you one other example of unreasonableness of how these emergency powers were applied, which is that we thought before that the vaccines could prevent the transmission of the virus. Hmm. It is common knowledge now. I'm not sure about how widely circulated this is in the press, but it's everybody knows that even if you have a vaccine, you can get the virus and then you can transmit it. Therefore, there is no substantial distinction between the unvaccinated and the vaccinated mm. in terms of that, in that respect of transmitting the virus. Therefore, why have different rules? Why will you have different rules? Uh, the unvaccinated is not allowed to travel. The unvaccinated can't enter the malls. And they're even discriminated in employment. There's no, there's no difference in how they can transmit. So we need to rationally think about this. Mm. Well, I, 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 will, I, will, I will put, a, I will put like one stake in the ground. I will put one stake in the ground. I guess we have to acknowledge that vaccines have some kind of efficacy. Like I think that's a, that's a, that's a you know, you can't, you can't steal man that, um, uh, that vaccines don't do anything, right? We, we can agree that the vaccines, if you have the vaccine, you will have a better day with the virus yeah. than without. But as to whether or not you can transmit... I think, it, yeah, definitely the, the thing that you pointed out is definitely true, mm -hmm. that the unvaccinated can spread. Please don't, please don't flag me as misinformation, Spotify. I'm so scared. <laughs> well, um, the podcast with Robert Malone is still there. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah it's still up. It's and we're not nearly as controversial as him. <laughs> yeah, but I'm also on Apple. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> no, um, so... I guess I guess what uh, I think I think yeah you 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 spoke to the heart of that issue that there are really like some central legal rights that are being affected by it. Um, I guess it's just unfortunate in a society like the Philippines that we don't uh, well we, we don't we're not litigious enough. I guess fortunate or unfortunate depending on you know how you view things, but we don't advocate for our rights as strongly as we might otherwise. Like I I think. A lot of the different re regulations wh and th that have now been repealed, right? Uh, the, a lot of them are would not stand up to, to judicial scrutiny, especially knowing what we know now about the virus. As to what that is, particularly, uh, you know, that's for a doctor to decide, right? But as for whether or not the restrictions of, like, locking someone up for 14 days anytime they went anywhere... <laughs> 
right? Like, I don't think that would stand up to judicial scrutiny. And the fact that that exists in certain provinces in the Philippines, despite the availability of vaccination, uh, is strange. Uh, and of course, I, I, sh I guess I should qualify some of my statements. Like, some, a lot of these statements are very time-bound. Uh, so it's like May 3 and, um, you know, May 3, 2022, and uh, vaccines are readily available for anyone who is worried about getting the virus and suffering the adverse consequences of COVID, right? And so, you know, I make that statement in that context, that it, it's cape, you can get the, the vaccine if you want to, if you're so inclined. I am vaccinated, and so are you, right, Ken? Yep. So it's not as if we're anti-vaxxers. It's just that it, I think, really, um, the COVID restrictions have set up, as you said earlier, a bad precedent, right? They make it so that this tool is now available, for yes. any, any future, what do, how would you call it? Would-be dictator. Yeah, yeah. And the way of the son of one. This is the, this is the perfect excuse. I mean, right, a, a pandemic that can kill your grandmother, right? This is the perfect excuse to have a... You hate grandma? <laughs> despotism. <laughs> I mean, you hate grandma, you don't want lockdowns, right? Yeah. Um, what do you think are, like, the moral challenges that it presents? Like, like, what do you think it says about us as a society that we, you know, leaned into it so hard that we don't mind being locked up for 14 days at a time for what is now not as much reason as, as there might have been before? For the longest time, I've been annoyed when people say, stay safe and do what you're told. Do what you're told, they don't say that, but that's the implication, right? And look, people who say that are well-meaning people. Like, I have no doubt that in their hearts, they really want me to stay safe because they legitimately fear the virus and they don't want me to contract it but right now i understand that people respond to fear i mean it really speaks about the power of fear we, i mentioned before the constitutional issue about discriminating between legal discrimination between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated i would also mention that because of these lockdowns th these restrictions on business these lockdowns but we should I, I guess we should be clear when we use our nomenclature like a restriction that a business imposes on itself mm -hmm. is fine like so say for example if that business decides that they don't want unvaccinated people as deplorable as that opinion might be mm -hmm. right in and that that depends they, largely they have the freedom to do that they yeah. have the freedom to i do agree that. yeah but a restriction that is handed down by the government for the purpose of enforcing that moral judgment yes is is in in our view i guess would be unconstitutional yes and i'm also talking about the shutting down of non-essential businesses mm -hmm. well number one I, mean, I think all businesses are essential in a way because people rely on them for livelihood jobs the idea of a non-essential business is quite disturbing to me and people rely on businesses for their livelihood and our country needs to have a robust economy the idea that you can just shut down businesses, categorize a whole swathe of industries as being non-essential is disturbing. And it really speaks to not that anybody is immoral, or, but it speaks to the power of fear. Because think about this. As a result of these policies, the COVID restrictions, lockdowns in particular, have been the biggest assault on the poor for decades. I will entertain examples of a, a bigger calamity that has befallen the poor over the past decades, but then I challenge you to, to think of one, right? 10 million people, so many people have lost their jobs. I believe the number was 10 million or more than 10 million. And this has really sunk our economy. And where are all the human rights? I'm sure there are, but they're nearly not enough. People who are human rights advocates, who are advocates for the poor, who are constitutional law scholars, I don't think there are nearly enough who are, who are voicing out concern as a result of this, as, as, a, as a result of these policies. And I don't, my judgment is not that they're immoral. It's my, I have a general judgment on the human condition, which is that it responds to fear, right? And that the government and the international institutions certainly have a role in this. I'm not saying that they are directly pushing for fear, but they are not being transparent. Mm -hmm. So speaking of roles, uh, we've spoken about like largely the, um, the penchant of the government to lean hard into um, their new factual justification for flexing their, let's call it regulatory might. Uh, so we use a benign term for it. Um, what then do you think is the role that media has played? Over the past five years, different scholars, thinkers, it's been part of the, of the zeitgeist that we are in the post-truth world. 
in the post-truth world, civil discourse has fallen apart. And this has had a significant impact upon our discourse uh, in relation to this pandemic. When you have a civil discourse, the classic idea of having a civil discourse, which I think all lawyers understand, is that everybody is in a forum and every, everybody is considered intelligent and has dignity and should be treated with dignity, and then everybody has to be heard. Do you find, is that, is, when you look at Twitter, when you go on Twitter, when you go on Facebook, are those principles familiar to you? Do you think that we have a legitimate civil discourse? I think that definitely, like, and there's issues of amplification. Definitely. Like, well, as, and so just so everyone is clear with what I mean, uh, I mean that uh, certain voices are made louder than others so that there's no equality of um, reach anymore, right? Maybe that says something about society. Maybe that, that says something about the bias that we have as a larger society. But I think it says more about the social media network's penchant to optimize in favor of the user experience. Well, there's really something to say about user experience because when I do voice my concerns about COVID restrictions, people's emotional reactions, and I do understand where they're coming from, they want good news. They don't want to hear any bad news. They want, they fear the possibility that their leaders are not transparent. They fear the possibility that their experts might be wrong. However, I would respond to that by saying that, look, like, we are adults. Whatever the truth may be, we have to accept it. If they turn out to, and I'm not saying if, if, if the experts turn out to be unreliable, if the policies before turn out to have failed in terms of achieving their desired objective, we need to look at that in a cold and objective manner, right? It, it, it can't be, fairy tales are for, are, for, are for children. Sorry, ferret what? Fairy tales are for children. Fairy tales so are for what, children. So whatever, and, and that brings me to my next point, which is genuine scientific investigation. Because if you want to have a, again, civil discourse and genuine scientific investigation, I, I submit that we do not have that in the COVID throughout the whole, this whole pandemic. We, we did not have that. When there are scientists like Dr. Robert Malone and Dr. Peter McCullough, which are both on Joe Rogan's podcast, for those who want to look them up, who are very highly qualified. When you have a Stanford professor like Dr. Bhattacharya, which is on, appeared on Lex Friedman's podcast, very high, highly qualified, who are, they don't even address their concerns. They just dismiss them right, mm. as being... Anti-vaxxers. Anti-vaxxers. And it's completely disingenuous, the idea of being anti-vaxxers. Just because you're against one, well, say, five vaccines doesn't mean you're an anti-vaxxer, right? Yeah. And again, sorry for meandering, but then an example of being disingenuous is the idea of asymptomatic. Why not just say immune? Like, if, if you're going to say 99% are asymptomatic or mild symptoms, okay, mild symptoms is different, but then asymptomatic, you have the illness, but you don't have symptoms. Think about that. Well, I mean, you know, that's, I, think that's, I think that's disingenuous a little bit, at least, at least that last point. Largely, we agree. But, like, say, for example, you know, guys can give girls HPV, you know? Like, and guys, they don't experience HPV, but girls can get breast cancer. Like, that's asymptomatic because, you know, gonorrhea for, I think, women are largely asymptomatic. So, you know, there's, like, so, like, asymptomatic actually does mean something. And there is, like, um, let's say, uh, a weight to the statement and a danger if you do carry a disease. And you're, and I don't know if asymptomatic okay. was accurately applied in the case of COVID. Okay. Right? And I, I'm not a doctor, so I can't speak to that. Fair enough, fair yeah, enough. Yeah. yeah. Right? Um, but, 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 my, but my point is, because of the censorship of legitimate scientific voices, around and the ostracism of people who are merely just giving asking questions about why this is happening so quickly are, are ostracized that's not in the spirit of scientific of civil discourse or scientific investigation like an automatic consensus wherein facebook has a covid notice and an, an auto warning on anyone really who voices concern yeah so that, that's not that, uh, like this this well, podcast uh, uh, is like, getting flagged. <laughs> uh, like the implication is everything is settled, right? Mm -hmm. And it's been settled by WHO. It's been settled by the authorities. And y you don't need to listen to anybody else. That's the idea. And stay safe and do what you're told. Mm -hmm. So little sheeple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
so let's just try to summarize, I guess. Like, so, and I'll try to do this with a question that's like a bit unfair, right? Because it requires you to have impressions. Um, what do you think people will look at, look back at this moment in history and say, like, a, you know, tail end of the epidemic and, um, well, hopefully the tail end, we don't know, right? We, we have to wait for what Big Brother tells us. But uh, <laughs> what do you think they will say? Man, that's a deep question because I think this, this era, I mean, these past two years, the decisions that have been made will have effects that will revert, reverberate for the next decade or even more. Some of those effects have not been seen yet. Like I said, the mental health effects, the effects on children, school children, we don't know that yet. There will definitely be very deleterious effects and there are beneficial effects. Like, for example, the, the rise of remote work. Right? You think that's deleterious? Is it just a no, 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 that, that's uh, a beneficial uh, COVID's, aspect. So COVID's good in your mind. <laughs> it's, asking, a, it's a mixed asking, bag. Asking, asking mis mis inherently misleading questions, like a good yeah. uh, paid hack. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a mixed bag, right? Mm -hmm. Because in the same way as Americans before complained about China taking blue collar jobs, remote they're gonna complain because remote work is going to take away white collar jobs. Oh yeah. Big time. Right. Yeah. And for people who are in ambitious, hardworking people who are from third world countries. Are from thir third world countries. That's the larger job market for white collar jobs because of remote work. That's amazing. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I'm benefiting from that. So it's a mixed bag and we don't know on net whether it's, whether it will on net be good or bad. Ken, I invited you on the podcast because you're this mix of rationality honesty, um, foresight, and humor that I particularly enjoy. What will you be doing in five years, man? Well, I'm on this track right now, which is corporate for all intents and purposes. And I intend to continue on that corporate law, as, as unfabulous as that may sound. I intend to contribute to the efforts for a more rational discourse about the virus, which we may discuss in another episode if yeah, the podcast doesn't get canceled. Five years from now, when we're still in it, like we're in the Zeta variant or the or, or the Alpha Alpha variant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, five years. Other than that, I, I really don't know. I mean, it's I like to think of myself as a planner, but five years is, is it, it's it's too far away, and I just, I, I want to keep doing kettlebells and doing Turkish get-ups even after five years. So I'll, I'll consider myself uh, to have to, to have spent it well and maintain my health and, and career, career track. Okay. Ken, thank you for coming on my podcast. Thank you, Rami. It's been a pleasure.